this is Monocle Reads. I'm Georgina Godwin. Today I'm speaking to a British journalist and author. Since 2017, he's been Managing Director of Condé Nast Britain, where he oversees titles such as British Vogue, GQ, Tatler, Vanity Fair, Wired and Condé Nast Traveller, amongst others. His intriguing new book of observations is The Imagination Muscle, where good ideas come from and how to have more of them. Albert Reed, welcome to Monocle Reads. Thank you. Very nice to be here. It's lovely to have you here, and it's also particularly lovely to have a man with such a storied past and such a great origin story. And I want to start with your grandfather. Sure. Tell us about him. Well, my grandfather, who I never knew, he died before I was born, but he's been this spectral figure hanging over my life and my my family's life all along because he had this remarkable story. He was the son of a a farmer. He lived, the son of a tenant farmer living in Yorkshire, in North Yorkshire, where I later grew up. And he had this idyllic childhood, this wonderful, very, you know, a childhood of riding in carriages and pre-mechanical engine, um, farming and, you know, hens scurrying across the farmyard and harvests done by hand with trailers and pitchforks. And he wrote about this very movingly in a, in a memoir, which is, is really wonderful, called The Innocent Eye. You can find it in, in second-hand bookshops. And what is remarkable about him is he, he then had this awful tragedy. When he was nine years old, his father fell from a horse while out riding and got ill and died. And he and his brothers and mother were ejected from their farm. They had to leave this idyllic rural idyll and went to, to an orphanage in Halifax where he spent the rest of his childhood and, and really, and his mother had to go and work in a laundry. And so he had this dramatic reversal, this, this sort of expulsion from the Garden of Eden, as it were, which really defined him for the rest of his life. And he then, he then was largely self, self-taught. self He joined the army, went into the First World War on horseback and was distinguished himself, got the DSO and, and wrote poetry and became one of the country's better-known war poets. In fact, is, is commemorated in Poets' Corner in Westminster Abbey. But really, he became better known in, in, in his life as an art critic. And he, he, he wrote about Henry Moore and Barbara Hepworth and Ben Nicholson, he launched the first surrealist exhibition in London. He co-founded the ICA. He became this enormous figure in, in British modern art. And really, he was a wonderful writer. He's written, he wrote 40 books, and he was a very, very distinguished man. And, and, and I'm very proud to be his grandson. And really, what, what has happened is our whole... My father then became a novelist and a writer, Piers Paul Reed, and our whole family, and my uncles have written books and done television, and we have architects and people in the creative world. So we've become a creative family, as it were, from this story of a farmer's lad. So it's, uh, so it's, it's a rather wonderful story, and I've written this piece in Tatler this month about it. And, um, and really, his imagination is what one of the things that sparked my own, my own forays, my own journey into this subject, because, mm. because he was so imaginative, and, and how this... A long, long line of farmers, you know, as far back as history goes to the Doomsday Book, is just reads of farming land, and then suddenly this this character emerges out of nothing and becomes this European art critic, you know, judging the Venice Biennale and being friends with Picasso and Dali and Stravinsky and also Peggy so, Guggenheim, Peggy Guggenheim, yeah. you know, Jung. So, so I, he's just a rather remarkable story. Yeah, and I mean, as as your father, as you said, Piers Paul Reed, a wonderful, wonderful writer. I, I was particularly influenced by his book about the Uruguayan uh, football team that ate each other in the Andes. Yes, alive. Yes, yeah. um, extraordinary book. Extraordinary book. Very successful book. It mm. became a film. 
And yes, that was an amazing story. And my father, again, is a wonderful writer. So, so this writing is the family business. Books is what we do. It became, you know, he, he's written 20 books. I've written one. <laughs> <laughs> this time. This, this time. time. Yes. Let's talk about the one that you have written. Yes. <laughs> it's called The Imagination Muscle, where good ideas come from and how to have more of them. And I guess the starting question is really, how would you define imagination? I would define imagination in, in a very simple term as seeing what is not already there and being something which is a magical force with inside us, something at the heart of us, which is really a mystery. And we don't talk about it much. I find it very strange. And when we do talk about it, we, we talk about it as this fixed quantity inside us. We talk about it as something that's bestowed from above and something that we either have or we don't have, or we have a little bit of it or we have a lot of it. And what I'm really saying in this book is the imagination is something you can work at. The language that we use around imagination, we use words like inspiration, which comes from inspiro, to be breathed upon by the gods, was this idea from the Romans. And so the idea that something is something that is just, we're lucky to have it or not lucky to have it, is something that I, I want to fight against in this book and say that something, if we're attentive to our imaginations, we can find all sorts of potential within ourselves. And this book, really, The Imagination Muscle, is, is designed to make us aware of these possibilities within our minds. And I guess I'm saying that in the way that we look after our physical health and we pay attention to our emotional well-being, then we should also pay attention to our imaginative health because that is the way you know, all the studies show that being imaginative, being creative, makes us happier, makes us more fulfilled, and really it's something that is at the root of being alive. And I think the other problem with society is we tend to outsource the imagination. We tend to think the imagination belongs to the professionals, the playwrights, the scriptwriters, the, 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 the musicians. And really, I think that's rather like saying, well, we have Olympians who run 100 metres, therefore we don't need to take any exercise. I think, I think there's a, if you look at societies in the past and societies in certain parts of the world, the imagination is part of everybody's, everybody takes part in imaginative activities, whether it's dance or song or around the campfire. Mm -hmm. And we've kind of lost that in modern society. Mm -hmm. And that's something that I, I want to bring back. And I mean, you go right back into the history, I mean, from cave paintings onwards, yes. really. Just talk us through that journey slightly. Well, I, I start with, with, well, the cave paintings, the, the very, very first miraculous appearance of, of human creativity, out of nowhere, seemingly. I start with this little inscription in the Blombos Cave in South Africa, which is about 70,000 years old. And then there's this silence, really, in terms of what we can see, what's left for us to discover for 30,000 years. And then about 40,000 years ago, there's this sudden explosion of cave paintings. The Homo sapiens have, have made their way up through Africa into Europe and somehow into other parts of the world that we don't really know how. And all over the world, you get these incredibly developed artistic works of horses and bulls and mammoths and they're beautiful and they're exquisite and they are really artistically much much more advanced than many things that came much later so we don't really know how they happened or how this this burgeoning of creativity happened so suddenly but it is this miracle that started then and then we see it through then we see the imagination taking its sort of it's emerging naturally through the storytellers of the medieval Islam and, you know, and, and before that in Homeric Greece. So, so I talk about storytelling and the imagination being a sort of necessary part of us mm. from the very earliest times. Mm. You talk about the, the Japanese concept of Ma? Yes. Japanese concept of Ma is a Buddhist concept, really. It comes from a sense of concept of sort of emptiness and selflessness. And it's a wonderful idea that we need to pay more attention to the, to the spaces between things, the pause in which life 
deepens its imprint. And, and really, it's about the silence, not the noise, and being comfortable with a lull in conversation. Because sometimes it's when nothing much happens that one feels most alive. And the worry about modern society in the West is we're moving further and further away from this idea of, of emptiness and space and and boredom. I, you know, I, think the, I talk about the importance of boredom. You know, Newton was bored when he when he watched the apple fall from the tree and Archimedes was bored when he was sitting in the bath. So there's a certain looseness of mental engagement that, mm. that is necessary for the imagination to do its work. And I think the worry that we have in today is we are ratcheting up you know, our expectations that we want to smooth out the, the gaps in between. We want, to, we want to order on delivery rather than slowly... Cooking yeah. onion in yeah. butter, you know. So, so it's those sorts <laughs> of, true. it's those little little spaces where we, you know, if the world is rendered frictionless, then so are the ideas that occupy them. Mm. Walking home from a party alone. Walking home from a party alone, which which Wordsworth identified, leaving a, a skating party. He he suddenly found his mind was flooded with ideas, and and Diderot, when he left a party, you know, the famous L'Esprit de l'Escalier, he had his ideas as he was walking down the stairs, and he had some brilliant line that he wished he'd used, but only when he was released from the the stress of social interaction, did the mind open up and, and did the ideas start coming? So really what I'm doing in this book is, what I'm trying to do is to make people aware of these moments in the day, in the night. I write about the waking moment, which I find personally a very useful space for the imagination. As soon as you wake up, you have this period of time. If you manage to resist looking at the news and looking at your emails and you go straight to your desk with a cup of tea or a cup of coffee, you can really find that your mind still has that looseness of being half attached to the unconscious mm. and half emerging into the into the waking world. And that, that fertile zone between wakefulness and sleeping is a very underrated moment in the day for me. Mm. And certainly, you know, Walter Scott wrote about it, saying this was the moment he felt he had his best ideas. And Einstein says he came up with the idea of relativity. He really finally understood the theory of relativity once getting out of bed in the morning. So the imagination master's got all these stories which illustrate, for me, quite valid, useful, instructive mm. moments for, for us to take advantage of. One story I absolutely love is uh, Schiller's method of rotten yes. apples. Tell, <laughs> tell us about that. Schiller, well, Goethe, Goethe and Schiller were great friends in, the, in Weimar and Goethe once went round to see his friend Schiller, Frederick Schiller, the great German romantic poet, and he wasn't in. And, and so Mrs Schiller sent Goethe to, to sit in his study and Goethe was just looking around the desk and he opened a drawer and saw a whole drawer full of rotten apples emitting this, this kind of stench, this what we now know is ethylene, this gas. And he asked Mrs Schiller, why, why does he have these, uh, these, these apples rotting away in his drawer? And, and she said that he found, he found that the, the gas, the ethylene, stimulated ideas in him. So it's a kind of... So, Again, one of the parts of the book is is the, the kind of quirky ideas that people have for stimulating thought and ideas. And I, I tried this when I was writing the book. I, I, I bought a bag of apples from Sainsbury's and <laughs> I put it under my desk. And after about six weeks, I tentatively reached down and picked up the carry bag and opened it. And there were these decomposing brown little sort of mushy apples. And, and I breathed in and took a deep breath from the bag and... And really, it was disgusting, and I had to rush to the window like Goethe. <laughs> <laughs> I was—I felt quite unwell for a few moments. But for, for Schiller, it worked. And you know, there are there are all sorts of you know. Turgenev used to write his novels with his feet in a bowl of hot water, and that for him that worked. And you know, some things work, some things don't work. And Nabokov used to write his books sitting in the back of a parked car. 
So, I, you know, they're kind of fun, these stories. And but um, but Plenty of pop stars have done it on a tab of acid. <laughs> and there's acid. There's always acid. And there's coffee. Balzac drank 50 cups of coffee a day and he died young of a heart attack. But you know, we don't have to go into that. <laughs> and... You know, but it's the spaces in between that I think are, are, are interesting. That we, you know, I, I love the story of of Henri Poincaré, the mathematician. This isn't actually in the book, but he 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 had this breakthrough getting on the bus between linking some very obscure Fuchsian dynamics with non-Euclidean geometry, and it suddenly came to him by getting on a bus. And George Michael came up with the opening saxophone piece for Careless Whisper, getting on a bus, and. I just ask myself, will people still have these ideas if they're checking TikTok as they get on the bus? So that's that's what we have to be aware of. Absolutely. That's what we have to be careful about. You also write about adopting a beginner's mindset. Yes. T- tell us more about that. Well, one of the fascinating things that I discovered was really that, as an example of this, of this is it's, a, it's again, it's a Buddhist concept. In the beginner's mind, there are many many solutions. In the expert's mind, there are very few. That's That's the kind of beginning of it. But really, what I found fascinating was if you look at the number of the scientists who won Nobel Prizes, there's a disproportionate number of them who have a side interest in some sort of artistic activity. So, I mean, before you come on to the Nobel Prizes, you know, someone like Isaac Newton was also a painter and a poet, and Humphrey Davy, who, who invented the first incandescent light bulb, also edited the lyrical ballads by Coleridge and Wordsworth. Really, what I'm trying to convey in the book is that if you remain humble, if you have something where you're still learning, then that ability to be open, to be curious, comes back into your day job. And I think one of the great challenges is, as you, as you get on in life, and if you're successful in your work, is how do you remove the complacency, the heaviness that comes with with success, with what you think is right? Because what you thought was right 10 years ago may no longer be the case. Mm. And I find this in my, in my work. You know, as I do my job at Condé Nast, I am very aware of of not being a beginner. And I, and I recall the words of Steve Jobs, who, when he was interviewed by Brett Schindler for, for the book Becoming Steve Jobs, he, he said that he had two phases at Apple and he invented the Apple Mac and then he had a couple of flops and then he was fired. And he said actually being fired was the best thing that ever happened to him because he could replace the heaviness of success with the lightness of being a beginner. And I, and I very much like mm. that idea of mm. the lightness of being a beginner. And how we retain that in our lives, I, I think, I think is... Is, is a really interesting question and a very important one to answer. And I think the answer often is just to be a beginner at something and take a risk. Mm. You go into sort of failure too. I mean, Edison, I think, yes. failed notably many times. Edison failed all the time, but of course had these incredible successes. But imagination is, is an elusive, slippery entity, which, which even the greatest artists and scientists and inventors can only grab onto sporadically. And, and I... And I Talk about you know if you think of anyone who is a great artist or great poet they they have many many failures behind them you know think of Wordsworth you know he 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 wrote the Prelude but he also wrote terrible poems like the Ecclesiastical Sonnet on American Episcopacy and you know one critic Jonathan Bates said if you start with this poem you'll never want to read him again so <laughs> so and then I th- I think of David Bowie who I who I think is you know a, a great artist. He started with the Laughing Gnome, this this abysmal song, and then he did Ziggy Stardust, and then he did something terrible called Tin Machine, and then he came back and did Black Star towards the end of his life. So the the roller coaster of success and failure, even for the great artists, mm. 
all the great inventors, Steve Jobs, you know, he he had lots, as many flops as he had successes. But boy, were his successes yeah. successes. When um, when Bowie was writing Heroes in in Berlin, uh, he was writing it with Brian Eno, and they yes. they had these cards, which Brian's now developed as a kind of commercial thing. But uh, and they didn't know what was. And David had a card saying, "You must say yes to everything," and Brian had a card saying, "You must say no to everything." <laughs> <laughs> I love and that. between that came this incredible piece of music. Yes. Heroes. I yeah. just love that story. Uh, Leonardo da Vinci yes. uh, had seven rules for imagination. Yes. What are they? The seven rules of imagination are, well, first of all, he was he was the ultimate. Don't get channeled into one into one uh, ridge. You know, if, if he'd lived, if there were two Leonardos, if you'd had, you know, living between 1452 and 1519, if you had one romantic artist and one you know, one, another scientist with the precise and relentless curiosity of a, of a scientist and mathematician, you could in, imagine these two people existing entirely separately, but they were the same person. And that is what's so completely gripping about Leonardo, even to this day. And he was endlessly taking his science into his art and his art into his science mm. and, and developing new artistic techniques through his powers of observation, going back to the earlier point. The seven rules are, first one is fill the mind from many sources. So make leaps across disciplines, make your patterns, find patterns that, that work in nature and, and when transposed to another setting, launch new trains of thought. His second one is study the evidence directly, and this comes back to observation. Use your own eyes, go to the original source as much as possible. We should feel, experience and sense things for ourselves. And the third one is never settle. Leonardo wrote, obstacles do not bend me, be unyielding to get to the truth. And fourth one, which I... I follow myself because I think it's a very important point, and actually there's been recent research showing this, that drawing or noting yourself using a pen is very important because ideas don't always present themselves before the pen is taken up, but often in the act of writing and drawing itself. And research shows that, that actually if you write with a pen as opposed to a, typing on a laptop, you think better, you have better ideas, and the ideas come in the act of writing. Number four, pursue interests and observations that may not have a clear purpose. So he, he writes about, you see in his notes, studying the tongue of a woodpecker. You know, he has these incredibly obscure, seemingly random and unnecessary little forays into analysis and studying. But he also talks about savouring the silence and the birdsong in equal measure, listening to the gentle breeze or the church bells, stretching horizons of inquiry until, until you alight upon the connecting idea that is unforeseen and unforeseeable. Paying attention to the detail is something mm. that else that he talks about. And then the other one that, number six, getting down the list, constantly imagine you could be wrong. Check your assumptions with the best possible counter-arguments. And Leon, I, I love this quote from Leonardo. He says, the greatest deception men suffer is from their own opinion. And I think that is <laughs> yes. a message for our times. Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> and in my book elsewhere, I say that the, the sign of a civilised person is to be able to imagine that you're wrong. And I think that's something, again, that we need to be more mindful of. Absolutely. And then the final rule of Leonardo is acquire the art of patience know that the imagination thrives sometimes by seemingly doing nothing. And while painting The Last Supper, Leonardo would get on the scaffolding and he'd stand there with folded arms and merely just observe for a whole day on end without painting another stroke until he was certain of what to do next. So I rather love that, just standing there doing nothing for a whole day. You've got a wonderful chapter about imagination and the city. Yes. uh, And Corbusier. Yes, Corbusier is, is is the villain of the piece yes. <laughs> in my chapter, and I, and I and I've already had run-ins with modernists who think this is a terrible 
indictment of a great genius. And I think he was a great genius. And I say that in, in the chapter. But my point about Corbusier is that he could have done an awful lot of damage to the world. And he, I think he did do quite a lot of damage. I was in Paris a few days ago and looking out from a rooftop at the, the Marais, remembering that in his Plan Voisin, the beginning of the 20th century, he proposed demolishing the whole of the third and fourth arrondissement and replacing them with parkland and skyscrapers, 40, 50 storey skyscrapers. And, you know, this idea was taken seriously. Luckily, it was, luckily it was rejected. But my line is that the, um, the imaginations of the modernist architects, the whole wave of modernism produced incredible, interesting art and music. And, you know, I talk about Picasso and Stravinsky. But when it comes to architecture, I think it did an awful lot of damage because I think, it, I think the imaginations of the architects were deployed in a way that meant that they couldn't envisage that what they were doing would limit the imaginations of the people living in their houses. So they weren't designing cities for ideas. They were designing mm. cities of their ideas, but not cities that, that allowed people to, to meet, to bump into each other. They write about zoning. Uh, Corbusier was a big fan of zoning, so you had the residential zone and the financial district zone, the business zone and the sports zone. And what I say in the, my book is the imagination isn't zoned. We don't respond well to zoning. We're not really comfortable in a zoned city. And the great heroine of my book, the woman I came away thinking what a wonderful person she was, was is Jane Jacobs, who is not that well known outside of architectural circles and outside of city planning circles. But Jane Jacobs was an American journalist from Scranton, Pennsylvania, who moved to New York as a young journalist in, in, in the 1940s. And she began to study the way the cities work. She lived in Greenwich Village. And she tracked the, the movement of people and she wrote a book which talked about the, the, the sidewalk ballet and how a city that works well, like parts of New York, like Greenwich Village, have a mixture of... And she had her rules too. They had a mixture of people. They had residential, they had work, they had you know, expensive buildings, they had cheap buildings, they had small flats for artists, they had big apartments. So, so it was this mixture of, of people and people doing things at different times of day that created a city where people felt safe and where they could encounter one another. And there was a sufficiently dense concentration of people that ensured there was a life and vitality about the city. And her great achievement was to stop Moses, Robert Moses, the, the great New York City planner, from demolishing, rather like Corbusier and the Mario, demolishing Greenwich Village. He, he wanted to drive a four-lane highway through Washington Square. And thanks to Jane Jacobs and her band of bunch of mothers, as Robert Moses put it, <laughs> they managed to stop him. And so... What I'm really saying in this, in this part of the book, and this is, for me, one of the most important elements of what I write about, is that the global city-dwelling population, more obviously in cities now than outside cities, and it's, the, the global city-dwelling population is projected to increase by 2.5 billion people by 2050, mostly in Asia and Africa. And China's building 300 new cities of over a million people in the next 20 years, and a large number of us live in 33 megacities. And so, so the ideas that are going to save us if we can have them in the future, will mainly take place in cities. And so surely nothing is as important as how we design cities. And I say that town planners should be saying in their meetings, imagination feeds growth. Ideas are our salvation. And so how do we design a city for ideas? And, you know, a building in an area once judged purely on its ability to shelter us now we should think about cities and buildings and how we design likeness rather than these big concrete monoliths that Corbusier so liked. We should think about how buildings make us feel and, above all, how they help us imagine. So 
that for me is, and I don't frankly see much progress. I go through parts of London and, and see new developments and I see the same mistakes being made, you know, for commercial reasons. People might say it's for density reasons. We need to, we need, I mean, of course, we have a housing crisis, but, you know, Paris has a much higher density than London. And we just got to figure out ways of, of achieving density with this natural organic flow of city life because we'll be happier, we'll be safer and we'll have more ideas. Wonderful, wonderful stuff. And this is a great book, The Imagination Muscle, where good ideas come from and how to have more of them. Albert, many thanks. Thank you very much. That's Albert Reed, and the book is published by Constable. It's out now. You've been listening to Monocle Reads. Thanks to the producer, Nora Hull. You can download this show and previous episodes from our website or your preferred podcast platform. I'm Georgina Godwin. Thank you for listening.